Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hey everyone, welcome to Education Suspended. Jessica Pfeiffer here. Happy New Year. 2023 is upon us. 2022, you went fast and you kind of kicked my butt at times, but (laughs) alas, here we are. It's crazy to me that we're actually on our way and getting ready to start wrapping up our second season of Education Suspended. We have two episodes left and they are both awesome, which I say about every single one. I realize that. So in today's episode, we sit down with Malika, who is the Chief Innovation Officer at the Highlander Institute. Super, super grateful for Malika's time that our worlds collided and that they reached out because her story is... I don't even know what word to use to describe her story. It is an absolutely beautiful example of the transgenerational educational experience, how she uses her her story to empower other students and to make the system better is inspiring, to be honest. Um, We have such good conversations and there's a lot of nuggets in here, um, which I, I hope you all are able to kind of soak up and ponder for a while. In particular, really, she just reminds us of the need to make relevant learning environments for her kids and create curriculums that have both windows and mirrors. So opportunities for them to see and understand their place in the world, right? How do they impact the society around them? And at the same time, mirrors, a better opportunity to look at themselves and and understand themselves better as students and how they fit in the world as well. I hope you all have a good start to your new year. Thank you all for listening. It means a lot. Sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Malika Ali. Good morning. How's it going? Good. You look like you're going to do stand-up comedy. I know. Put the brick on me. You can do that today. That'll be good. Let's go. We're really looking forward to connecting. Thank you so much for your time. Malika, we begin all of our episodes the same. I'm going to have you introduce yourself to our listeners, talk about what you do, how you got there, and then if you feel inclined, which we always love, if you wouldn't mind talking about your own educational experience and then connections it has to what you're doing now, and we'll just go from there. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here and get to talk to you all. And just uh, by way of introduction, my name is Minnie Ghani, and I'm the Chief Innovation Officer at the Highlander Institute. We're headquartered in Providence, Rhode Island, but we work with schools and districts all across the country. And we partner with school communities to imagine and create more um, equitable, relevant, effective schools. What we want to be true is ultimately that classrooms are are empowering of all kids. And in order for that to be true, because we think about the ways in which systemic inequity plays into classrooms and schools, we're always centering students for whom the system has not been working. We want to see schools that are adaptive and uh, and, and systems ultimately that are liberatory. And so I uh, have been at the Institute for about, uh, this is my sixth year. And I started as an instructional coach. My heart has always been in the classroom. So I was a high school science teacher. But the way that I got into education was a little bit of a roundabout way. 
I studied uh, public health um, and biology and I did research for a little while. And I remember working in a lab and I was the only woman and the only person of color in a genetics lab. And I would just look around and think, it should not be like this. I should not be the only one. Like, why is this the case? And I'd always operated within a social justice framework. That was part of my identity. And that stems from my childhood. My family are originally from East Africa. We're from a small country called Eritrea, which borders Ethiopia and Sudan, and it's right on the Red Sea. And Eritrea fought a 30-year war for independence. Whenever I have to do introductions and I share an interesting fact about myself, I always share that I'm older than my country because my country didn't gain independence until I was four years old. So my parents grew up during that war, and it framed just how they are. There is this revolutionary spirit within everyone in my family, I think, because of that. And that can mean a lot of different things. So, you know, for each of my parents, they were pretty much completely on their own by the time they were 14. And my father was orphaned during the war. Uh, my mother, you know, left as a refugee when she was 14, crossed over to Sudan, and then tried to create a life there. She knew that for folks who were living in the camps, access to education would be really, really hard for them. She was not about to get stuck there. She found her way to a schooling system, was able to, with all the challenges of not having a passport, not having a birth certificate, not having any documentation, eventually get herself through school. And this is like part of our legacy was the pursuit of education being a part of our liberation. For my father, it was a similar story. His parents passed when he was young, so he uh, had worked since he was six years old. He tried to go to Ethiopia, was not able to get in, tried to go to Egypt. A war broke out in 1973 there, um, eventually crossed over the Red Sea, was able to move to the Middle East and studied there for a bit, eventually came to the U.S. and then my mother as well. So as I was growing up in what had been a sundown town in Oklahoma. I was born in uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, but my family lived in Norman, um, which is where the University of Oklahoma is, Bloomer Sooners. We grew up with this recognition that we were always going to have to be, you know, pushing up against systems of oppression. That for me, as a Black girl, in classes where I was the only one in every single space that I was in, in public school, you know, that, that meant that I was always conscious of these aspects of my identity that show up before me. And so I had to learn when I was very young that people would not just approach me and uh, wait to see what I knew or didn't know. That in a lot of ways, I had to fight against stereotypes, perceptions of what I was capable of. And that played out in my educational upbringing. Uh, but I was so grateful that I also had informal spaces of learning uh, or other spaces of learning outside of kind of a formal, formal schooling system, public schooling system that affirmed my identity that reminded me who I am, where I come from, and that leveraged my identity as strengths to make learning more effective, to make learning more relevant, and ultimately to allow me to situate my own condition within a larger context and feel committed to seeing the humanity in everyone, no matter what, and also pursuing justice, promoting justice in whatever spaces I'm in. So that's just part of my upbringing. It came from my parents. It came from just observing in the spaces that I was in. And then, you know, I get to college and I have this sort of this mindset around uh, social justice, but it hadn't clicked for me that education would be the path, even though I had these amazing stories. So in my, in where uh, my family's from, in Eritrea, for a very long time, we were colonized people. And my grandmother and others ran underground schools because people were not allowed to go to school past a fourth grade. Uh, you weren't allowed to get a uh, past fourth grade education. You know, there are people who would smuggle books from Sudan or from wherever, and they would run these underground schools. So education was this, uh, it was not just about kind of college and career. It was about self-actualization. It was about 
liberation. It was about who am I, where do I come from, and where am I going, and how do I have agency in that, no matter what oppressive circumstances are. Um, I'll speed up this story a little bit just to kind of get to back to that space of like, okay, I'm in this lab. I'm thinking about, you know, I love science. I love people. I love justice. And that was sort of, there was a sort of click where I knew that I wanted to work with young people. I became a high school science teacher and I absolutely loved it. Absolutely, absolutely loved it. Um, I had students who no one in their family had ever gone to college. They were the first to go to college. I had students who had dropped out had come back to school. I had students who came to schools with an ankle bracelet. You know, they were in the system in a way that was really, really oppressive for them and, and, and just hard. And they were all just trying to turn things around. And my goal was to help them be scientists, um, to transform their own lives, their communities and society, to feel like their education was a source of empowerment and that it could inspire them to do that work of transformation, starting with themselves. So that's a little bit about how I got here and why I do what I do and how in the last five years and change at the Institute, a lot of my leadership has been about thinking about those conditions for success, particularly for kids uh, whose communities have been marginalized by systemic inequity. Holy buckets. I could not write fast enough to keep up with your story. That was amazing. <laughs> Can I ask a quick question? Yes. Absolutely. I was very intrigued when you you talked about your your typical public school setting, but then you talked about those other spaces. Mm. Can you be specific about that a little bit? I think our listeners would love to know what those other spaces were. First and foremost, it was the home. It was uh, the work that my parents did. I always used to joke that I had schoolwork and then mama work because my mother would give me all this extra work to do. Doing my homework uh, was never enough. She was very intentional about supplementing whatever curriculum there was at school, she had her own curriculum. And so she was very, very intentional about making sure that part of my upbringing, part of my educational journey included that knowledge of self, knowledge of where we come from, kind of that historical context. And she did a great job of bridging things together because sometimes in education, we isolate content areas and we isolate these things. We don't always integrate them in an interdisciplinary way to understand, well, what is the meaning that I'm making in any given situation where I can, I can take a situation and explore the context, historical context, political context, social context, et cetera. So she helped me do a lot of that integration. And that was really, really, really crucial for me. I actually called her yesterday and I told her, <laughs> it was just randomly, I, was, I called her in the morning and I was like, Mama, thank you so much because I just wouldn't be here without you. And I was just reflecting, feeling so grateful because I, I, I got to do a panel to talk about my own leadership journey uh, at Harvard where I'm an alum and I got to share my leadership journey there. So I was just sitting and it just sort of hit me. I was sort of reflecting on, on my own path um, and how I got here. So I called her and I said, you know, you did a lot to get me here. And, and had I not had that space of learning, I, I wouldn't be here. The other space for me that was really important was the spiritual space. So I was at the mosque and I had a teacher who was just absolutely incredible. I mean, he's First of all, the most brilliant human I've ever met in my life. He had a photographic memory. Um, he would do this thing where he would just ask you to grab him a book and open it to a random page. And he would look at it for a few minutes. And, uh, and then he would just recite the page for you. And he was brilliant in so many different ways. But I think the thing that was uh, so powerful about that space of learning was that he had a love for learning in a way that I'd never seen before. He was a lifelong learner. He was somebody who learned for the sake of learning. And that was beautiful for me because growing up uh, in poverty, growing up uh, with a lot of insecurity around just our financial state as a family, um, what was going to become of us. Um, and so for me, growing up in a lot of ways for my parents, the language around education was about financial security. It was about getting out of poverty. 
it was just that narrative of this is going to get you to a better place. What I loved about the space of learning that I had with him was it was learning for the sake of learning. It was just about curiosity. It was about the love for it. And it nurtured in me this just desire to always learn, even if something had nothing to do with a pathway towards financial security or college or career or anything. He's, he loved astronomy. So he would just teach us about astronomy randomly. And I learned so much and I would just go home and I would say, can we go to the library? Can we get books? And I just wanted to pursue for the sake of, and that's probably why I ended up uh, loving science and studying science was because I learned to love learning through, uh, through him. Um, and then my parents really, we spent a ton of time at the library. <laughs> we didn't really do sports or music or anything like that. We really couldn't afford to, but you know, my parents could take us to the library. That was something they could do. It was free. There were books everywhere. There were games and we just were so excited about that. And it's entirely exploratory because there's no, there's no, we weren't going for programs. We just show up and there's just a world of knowledge there and you could just find books and read. So I would say like, those are the three spaces that were probably most important in terms of more informal spaces of learning outside of school. This theme of the pursuit of education is extremely generational for your family, which is amazing. And even that story about your, your grandmother teaching and having books smuggled in. Before your grandmother, do you know the root of that? Or was it just because they pursued it because it had been taken? I mean, mm. where, where did that come from? Yeah, it's a really good question. I would say part of our history and part of our story is about uh, education. You know, not just for the purpose of liberation, not just as, because it, it is something that ha had been taken, but because my ancestors, when I, my mother would tell me stories about how they were institution builders, they were poets for no other reason, except it is a beautiful thing. And it is a human thing to try to describe intangible, abstract things with words or with music or with art, you know, any art form. Uh, there's something really beautiful and human about that. And so building institutions meant uh, building libraries. It meant trying to explore and understand the world just for its own sake. That's just part of our legacy. So there's that aspect, which is, I think, the part that, that I feel most connected to. Then there's this aspect of building societies. You know, if we want a pluralistic society, because Eritrea is a very, very diverse place. There are nine ethnic groups with nine different languages just within the country. And so for the sake of trade, for the sake of economy, for the sake of building up a society that is pluralistic, that is healthy, and where you have to navigate politics and you have to navigate culture and you have to navigate different systems, different economic systems, you just sort of had to have that. So that's the sort of application to society. So there's the beauty, there's application to like building a civilization, building a society that is pluralistic and is able to function across context and across, uh, across cultural context. Um, and then I would say the third piece is the kind of the very specific pursuit of, of interest, whether it is we needed to make sure that we educated our people so that we could combat colonization or so that we could, uh, you know, have some kind of financial security. Those are the more kind of specific. So I'd say that those three buckets are kind of the main reasons. Well, and it's interesting how those three buckets really, I mean, that's why I love this podcast and I love hearing educational stories are the root of kind of what you do now. As we were prepping for this, we were trying to do some research, right? Kind of look at your story and look at the story of the Highlander Institute. And one thing that really resonated with both, with both Grainer and I was your theme that to change the system, to evolve the system, 
while it can be easy to jump right to the kids, you also you, you have this through line of focusing on the adults, the caretakers of the kids. How did the plane lander? Who, who, who recognized that that's where we have to begin to support those people? So when I joined the Highlander Institute, a lot of what we were known for was blended and personalized learning, really that ed tech space. And the team was made up of just incredible, incredible uh, instructional coaches, people who really believed that the teacher is such a crucial, fundamental part of the education system. And the difference that a teacher can make can change the trajectory of a kid's experience forever. And research tells us that. In my own story, I know and can feel the truth in that. And we see that show up in the data that we see in terms of the outcomes for kids. A kid could have a completely different experience with one teacher versus another teacher. And in some ways that's empowering because we realize, okay, there are things that are within our sphere of control that actually can solve what feel what feels like these huge systemic issues in terms of a, a kid's education. And there's a lot of responsibility there. And so I think that was a, a function of the Institute ever since I've been there. But I think where we shifted in the last five and a half years is not just in the role of the teacher, but in the role of the administrators at the school level and the district level and, and the state level. What we had seen previously was that, you know, our coaches who are amazing would work in classrooms coach teachers, be in there, right in there with the students, with the teachers, and you'd see these huge gains, but they'd be these isolated classrooms. And they had these, what we'd call like lighthouse classrooms that we thought, okay, well, other classrooms will then like take example and grow that way. But we realized we needed a little bit more of a cohesive model that engaged the school leader to set up the conditions for success, not only for those teachers who are showing incredible improvement, and we needed to bring in the school community beyond the building. When you say adults, and I appreciate that you just name it as adults because we developed this model and our, our executive director, Sean Rubin, and our director of communications, Kathy Danford, wrote a book called Pathways to Personalization, which codified this framework for school change that includes not just the teachers, the school leaders, and students need to be part of that as well. Our students who are on our design teams are incredible you know the adults will be talking and then they'll say well you know here's my perspective or here's actually what i'm seeing in the data because we teach them the data protocols as well um, and that's a huge part of it is data literacy for the whole design team because they need to be able to analyze data they need to be able to make meaning of it they need to discuss the implications and then come up with a plan and our kids are doing that and it's always so amazing to hear them say actually this is my perspective this is well one this is how am i'm analyzing the data this is my perspective from being in the classroom this is what I would suggest kind of moving forward. And they help us drive the work as well. We need all the adults, all the different stakeholders around the table. And that's when we start to see like meaningful analysis of what's happening and also meaningful changes that people are bought into and feel ownership of as we try to transform a school community and a district. Cause we've done this change model kind of at the school level and at the district level as well. I, I would love to know one example, a fairly specific example of what a design team might look like. You know, so often we teach in silos. You you mentioned that earlier. Um, and here's this wonderful integrative opportunity that you're offering. Specifically, what might one look like? Yeah, absolutely. I can share one that we just had. 
in this design team, there are teachers, there are administrators, there are students, there are family members, viewers, et cetera. So one of our data sources is called our student experiences survey. And it is students' perceptions of culturally responsive practices. And so students are the ones saying, this is what's happening in the classroom. Our last design team meeting was focused on analyzing the survey results in the domains of the teacher's awareness, the teacher's affirmation of their cultures and identities and backgrounds and making them feel proud of where they're from. And do they feel like they're an important member of the classroom? And, and then also their academic mindset. We know that if students believe that their ability and competence goes with their effort, they believe their intelligence can change, that actually those beliefs can improve their outcomes, their academic outcomes. In this design team, we were analyzing this data and they just went through a data protocol together. We disaggregate it by different identities, learner profiles, so race and gender. Um, do they have an IEP? Are they multilingual learners? Um, do they qualify for free or reduced lunch? We look at, we look, disaggregate by all of those and then intersectional ones. So we, we start to see, okay, where's there really, really, really an issue? Are students who have IEPs who are also low income? And we start to see like, okay, that's a group that's really struggling. We're like, they really don't feel comfortable sharing their thoughts and opinions in the classroom. That's one that this particular school is really focused on. Um, and that was one that we saw. We saw like students with IEPs who came from low income backgrounds rated it particularly low. And boys within that group in particular, they did not feel like they they could share their thoughts and, and do it in their classroom. So we're looking in really nuanced ways at data. And that team is trying to say, okay, well, here's why this might be true. Okay, this is something we need to try or in our professional development when we're doing this PLC and we're focused on this, you know, research-based strategy. Well, why don't we, why don't we do this in this way to specifically address it with these groups of students? We're really planning around that. Maybe we need to do more focus groups to better understand these students' experiences. I can't imagine, and this is just more of a comment, I can't imagine how valued everyone in that team feels or how the relational part of that team works itself out in a way that boosts everybody's morale. I, I'm guessing these these are not the teachers that are looking to get out of education. I, I just throw that out as a comment. Maybe you could uh, expand on it a bit. Not just the technical and the wonderful things they're able to do, but their relationships themselves. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Actually, in that design team, the coach who is responsible for that school, um, you know, she and I were discussing one of those survey items. I feel like an important member of this classroom and just how powerful and generative the conversation is around that particular survey item. And she said, we should really track that for the design team. We should really see if everybody there felt like they were really, a really important member of the design team and a really important member of the school community. And that the work that we're doing together is not only feeling like it can be impactful, but also that their particular role in that space and in that community, in that group, in that on that design team is powerful, it's important, it's necessary, it's needed, it's valued, because not every member of the design team is really excited about their job necessarily. Sometimes it's people who are just, they're riled up and they just, they want to be advocates and things are not good as they are. There are educators who've told me, had it not been for the design team, I was feeling helpless in my role as a teacher. I'm seeing so much and I don't have the space to talk about it and feel like a leader and feel like I can actually do something about it. So in some ways, we try to find those people because we don't want to lose them. The people who want to be in the classroom, they want to be inspiring kids every day, but the systems around them, they just don't feel like they have the tools, the support, or the voice and power to do things, to make things better for their kids ultimately. You know, what's sticking out for me is that by your 
I want to say purposeful, but is that a word? Is purposeful a word? Okay, I'm going to use it. Yeah. I got two thumbs up from both of you. <laughs> so, but you all being purposeful and really ensuring you have a truly integrative team leading this process. It sounds like you're trying to have all, all components of this educational environment, inward facing and outward facing present. And by your ability to do that, you're really able to, to kind of get to where you, where we need to be from a, you know, from an intersectionality approach. It goes back to what you were saying before, like all these silos that exist can be really detrimental because it keeps us not just from a systems perspective, really uh, bogged down in ways that we don't understand, but even from understanding our kids and who they truly are from a whole student perspective. I think intersectionality is crucial and, and, and you're able to do that by having the right people at the table. Another thing that's coming up for me, and I would love if you could ex uh, kind of expand on what this means. And so the, the Highlander Institute, a lot of, you do a lot of things, but your ultimate premise seems to be the creation um, and imagining equitable learning environments. And today you've said a couple times, while you focus on all the kids, you're also, you're also a little bit more attuned to those whom in which school is not currently working. For Grainer and I, one thing that has become true with COVID, we feel is that more people have become aware of the fact that school's not working for a lot of kids. Those that were able to kind of fly under the radar for a while, COVID lifted the veil. And we're really in this realistic perspective of something has to shift. Okay, let me land this plane. You all talk about different ways to do that, different areas of focus. And one word that you use um, is this, this concept of relevant a relevant learning environment, a relevant school environment. What do you mean by relevance? So relevant in a few different ways. One is relevant to students' identities, interests, values, priorities, relevant to the real world, things that are around them, relevant to applications of content that could open their eyes to potential pathways. It's about just not having the learning be one, just abstract, and then two, not just centered on dominant groups. There's a teacher, he was interesting, and my students, you know, they just, they give up, they're not persevering, and it's very, very deficit-based language about kind of where, where the kids were. The short version of the story is uh, we had everyone do look at their curricula, audit it for relevance. Is it relevant? Is it meaningful? Does it uh, affirm students' identities and, in particular, um, elevate non-dominant perspectives? Does it create space for students to, to have the windows and the mirrors to see themselves reflected in the curricula, but also, um, that's the mirror, right? But then also see into other cultures and ways of being, and that's the window. And so having the space to do that, we supported them to redesign a unit uh, through that lens and really interrogate the extent to which their curricula actually affirmed students in that way, leveraged their strengths, felt relevant, felt meaningful. And after that redesign, this was a teacher who by the end in the focus groups, kids said uh, they loved coming to that class. The learning was so fun for them. And that he noticed by the end of that PLC that students were more likely to engage in productive struggle. You know, their stick with itness improved. They were persevering a lot more. They were engaged. He had these essential questions that were rich, that created space for multiple perspectives, that engaged students in dialogue. It wasn't just a simple, you know, what happened? 
and why, it asked them questions that are relevant to them today. Felt so relevant. So they were they were engaging with history. They were connecting to stories that were that actually reflected also their uh, many of their identities. And they were thinking about, well, how does that actually apply in my particular context and moving forward? I absolutely love how you said curriculum that gives windows and mirrors. I looked up and Steve and I both wrote that down immediately. I'm gonna put that in my pocket and use that. I also love that that context of the windows and the mirror because Steve and I work with, with schools and educators from around the world and our, and we always come back to this theme of relevance as well. It's one of our big pillars in particular from understanding that our educational system in our opinion is, is very rooted and built on developmental expectations and trajectory that are often not realistic or relevant for a lot of groups of kids, in particular groups in marginalized populations. And so by ensuring that curriculum gives windows to self and windows to the community, I think it really takes away some of the vulnerability that does exist for environments to not be developmentally relevant for students. So I just had to say that. I love that. I was going to follow that up too, Jessica. Mirrors and windows. What a beautiful both and statement that is. I, I love the idea of we're scientists and poets at the same times, and we're dreamers and doers at the same time. For anyone who needs to know this, Malika is a beautiful writer too. And so if you ever get to read something she's written, you'll you'll love it. At one point in what you wrote, you said, we need to decide what to keep <laughs> and what to change and what to build. What do you think we need to build? What is the frontier that we should be headed towards? I believe that communities have the power and capacity within them to successfully and effectively solve whatever challenges come up. We need to build the spaces for them to collaborate, to learn, to design, and to do, to lead. I think the more of those spaces exist, the more we see innovative, relevant, meaningful change happen for school communities by school communities. I love that concept of nothing about us without us. So we we never wanna be coming in saying, this is what people should do. We can come in and bring resources and tools and research and support. We can empower and provide tools and provide spaces of learning. And in facilitating that, the brilliance, it's, it's there. It's, it's there. It's always been there. Um, and people just want the space to talk. I think the thing that people feel most excited about in our design teams, which I think is the most crucial thing that we have been able to build alongside and with school communities, what we hear more than anything is just how wonderful it is just to talk to each other across these identities of teacher and principal and curriculum lead and parent and grandmother and student, like just to take those things away and just talk as humans and then say, okay, well, within my role, this is something that's within my sphere of control that I can do within this person's role. This is what they can do. Okay, let's come together. We actually can solve all of our problems. So I would say we need to build those spaces of collaboration. A plus, I love that. And it I'm not trying to go back to the things that Steve and I teach, but there's these different themes that we talk about from a systemic and individual perspective to create developmentally appropriate learning spaces around kids. Relevance, you've already talked about it, and you also just brought up the theme of the relationship. 
teachers want to connect. And even as a supervisor, I find myself, that's probably one of the largest pillars that I lean into for my adults. Because if, if, if I'm gonna ask them to do that for the kids and to build rich relational environments around their kids, they've gotta experience that in their own life as the adults, so. I'm just guessing then within the curriculum of the schools that you influence, there's a lot of project-based learning going, I, I, and I'm not a trained in that. I'm just, it, it just strikes me logically. Is that true? That kids are working together towards a goal so they can be connected while they're doing something that they know is relevant. Absolutely. Um, and different forms of that, because some of the things that we know, we always, we always tell educators, you know, if they're sort of stuck in the compliance bucket, and we want to shift them to more engage, uh, engagement based on teaching and learning. That looks like longer term tasks where kids get to deepen their learning over time. It looks like a very rich, essential question. It looks like them being able to apply what they learn to something that is meaningful and relevant. Um, and so absolutely, that looks like project-based learning. That looks like problem-based learning. That looks like these longer-term tasks and units that allow them to explore deeply and not just do worksheets. <laughs> right. And how much, how much agency do they get on those projects? I have an example from a fifth grade teacher who I used to coach. You know, he's taught for about 20 years and uh, he was doing a unit and he told me that the last 15 years I've taught the unit exactly the same. So, you know, you're asking me now to give the students agency and choice. You know, I don't know what that looks like. So we, we used a, a simple thinking routine at, at the beginning of the, uh, of the unit. We asked students, I uh, was okay, here's the topic. And the routine was a think, puzzle, explore. So you're hearing this, what does it make you think? You know, the puzzle is what questions come up for you. And then the explore is what are some ways we could explore this. The students all journaled on it and then they plotted it on chart paper. And he said, I looked at what they came up with. And I was so inspired by what it made them think, the puzzles, the questions that came up. He said, my unit didn't attend to most of what was on their list. That was the inspiration for him to redesign his whole unit. That's what my kids are interested in. They are thinking like scientists. They were, they were asking questions about what causes it? You know, how do we prevent it? What examples are being done? How does this affect us regularly? And it was, he was like, oh my gosh, I had limited them. Redesigned the whole unit. They did these projects at the end where they got to, because he couldn't tackle everything that was on their list. So he gave them projects at the end, we get project-based learning, where they actually got to take whatever questions they didn't in the unit, they got to pick one and then explore it on their own. And then they presented them at the end. So everyone got to kind of learn from one another. So that's one example of using choice. So I want to end, um, and I want to bring you back to your days as a high school science teacher, because I, I had intended to ask you more questions about that, but alas, we're not going to have time. If you were to go back in time and talk to yourself as that, as that science teacher, as someone that was passionate and, and recognized the system's got to shift, what's one simple, tangible thing that you would have said to yourself, hey, start here? Yeah, I like that question because I think quite often about, you know, if I were to go back into the classroom, and I hope one day I do, I plan to, what would I do differently? What would I say to myself? I think one is let the kids drive more. If I want them to be scientists, and they are natural scientists, they should drive more. I had, I felt a lot of pressure to cover curricula to get through my scope and sequence. And there are ways that I try to sort of deepen the learning, but I think just let the kids drive more. I think that's number one. I think number two is, you know, so often we think about uh, how kids are connecting to what they learn. Um, I think for my kids, 
I tried to do this a little bit, but not enough. Um, I always tried to tie something to their their cultural background. So if I I was I was learning a lot of my kids were Puerto Rican and Dominican and African American. Those were kind of those were those were the majority of my students. And I remember just learning so much about agriculture and just certain aspects of technology and and what were people doing that was really cool there and how can I make those connections? I wish I did a little bit more of that. It's a lot of work, but I think just kind of designing around what kids found relevant and probably more more connection with families to be able to do that work instead of trying to do everything myself. And that was why I said like those isolated classrooms don't work. I would say to myself, find people who are trying to do this, do it together. We've discovered in this podcast world with people we've interviewed, but Malika has really brought it home that wisdom is coming to us. The wisdom to change in education is coming to us from the margins. It's not coming from the mainstream. And I think you're recognizing what you're getting from these kids is, and the teachers, everybody who are involved in these teams is we're learning from the margins as, as I think, you know, I'll start with your mom and dad. Um, that's where it came from. I, I think that's just a beautiful thing for us as educators to look to the margins, to look to the kid, people who have struggled and overcome. Those are the people that have a lot to teach us about how to teach. That's just my parting shot. That's a good parting shot. I couldn't have said it better myself. Malika, we, we cannot thank you enough for for joining us. We're very grateful for your flexibility. It's, you know, uh, we're not the largest podcast in the world, even though we are growing very fast, thanks to our listeners. But we we appreciate you sticking with us. You and your story have been so insightful for me, and I found it very ins- um, inspiring. So thank you for the work that you do. Um, thank you to your team. It's been awesome. It's been awesome having you here. Uh, and I do love the background. I was, you know, Grainer started the whole podcast. It's like, we're going to have a stand-up comedy show. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate you both. And uh, even if it wasn't comedy, I hope I left you and everyone listening in a place of hope because that's always where I want to leave us. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to, to spend this time with you.